Good morning, Grace. I want to tell you, it's been a long journey, and I don't mean just us driving from North Carolina up here. Uh, this journey began for us, I think, in our, towards the end of October. When, you know, well, I had recently told my wife, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if it might be time for us to move on. She said, I don't think so. I said, I don't know. And she's like, you know, I, I'm going to trust you, um, but, you know, just don't do anything without my consent and knowledge. Um, and by the providence of God, she got COVID, and she was too weak to put up a fight. <laughs> so I appreciated that. Uh, but it began a, a fairly long journey as we got to know you mostly from a distance. Occasionally, we would, you know, because we have family in the area, we were able to come up and sneak in here kind of incognito and just, you know, check you all out in person. And, uh, but it's been a real joy and pleasure to kind of get to know you both in person and online and just growing this connection. And behind the scenes, you know, we went through your Christmas devotional uh, or Advent devotional with our, with our family and hearing of the things that God is doing and working in you and you being in our prayers throughout the, the past several months that we, we find this connection with you as a, as a people. And I just want to let you know, um, well, we're, you know, we've been with you, and it's been uh, important for us as well. Whether or not you decide you want to ever see my face again, we have been with you, um, and that's not a guilt trip. Well, maybe it is, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, you're, you're precious to us. Now, when you go to seminary and you take a preaching class, most of the time they're going to tell you, you know, one thing is going to be pretty consistent. You don't start with application. You don't start with uh, the challenge. You, you wait until you unfold the scriptures to give a challenge. And, you know, normally I've, I find that to be true. But today I'm going to break the rules because I am a rule breaker. So here's the challenge. Because I know that you and I both have a temptation here this morning. My temptation was that, you know, to, to provide what I would consider, you know, the, the best sermon that I've ever preached with the most engaging illustrations, the most thoughtful, coherent points that will keep you engaged the entire time and leave you thinking, wow, that guy is smart. Or at least that's my hope. Your temptation, that as I open the word of God, that we come together and we say, well, is he worth listening to for however many years? And rather than hearing Christ's words to his people, we say, I'm going to be judge over his words. So my challenge to us this morning is for both myself and for you that today we're going to open up the word of God. And the word of God is going to be preached. And we're going to hear it. And on the way home, you can judge and critique me all you want. But from right now, we're going to sit under the word of God. Let me pray for one more time. Kind Father, I give you thanks and praise for uh, your grace to us, uh, for this people whom you've called by, uh, by your spirit, for whom your, your son has died, and ultimately through whom your name and that of the son and of the spirit will be glorified. Come in our midst and speak to us through the words of your son. And between each line that I preach, Lord, we ask that you would preach, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would affirm to us all that is true and good and lovely, and that we would leave here different from when we came. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Now I know as we gather together in a group this size, we came, well, differently. For some of us, we came in having a great week, a great week spiritually, with spiritual victories. You did the stuff. You read your Bible. You got up for prayer. Maybe you even had, you know, you got to evangelize to a coworker that you've been praying about for months, if not years. You saw the, the working of the Spirit begin to transform and overcome habitual sins that you've struggled with. You didn't raise your voice at the kids like you thought you would or you have in the past. You, you saw the Spirit of God at work in your life, and you know, it was a week of victory. But I also know as the, as the church gathers today, not everyone has, is coming in with a week of victory. Some of us have come in discouraged and downcast. That we didn't live up to our own standards, much less those of a holy God here this morning. And perhaps the only reason you're here is to see how big of an idiot the guy who's going to be speaking is going to make himself to be. But you came in defeated, discouraged, and you're wondering, you're wondering, can God accept me? Can, God, can I be made right with God? And we read in the scriptures of God's grace and his mercy to people, but not you, because you knew better. You, you knew the truth, but you didn't live it. And to both people, we hear the same word. That justification, I mean, to, to be right with God is both farther and nearer than we think. It's farther than, than, we would, than we ever would believe, but also nearer than we would ever dare hope. And as you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be hearing one of the parables of Jesus. Now, I've been spending a lot of time reading through the parables, and, and I've noticed um, you know, something about the parables. And it's not new to me. Or, I mean, well, maybe new. It's not new to, to the field of parable studies. Um, but one of the things about the parables is that Jesus uses these parables, these short stories, in order to, well, really change people's minds, to disturb them almost. And I found that if I read a parable and I don't come away a little bit disturbed, a little bit unsettled, perhaps even a little bit angry, I probably haven't read it right. I've probably missed something. So we are in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's going to be on page uh, 1068. We're going to start at verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, one of the problems in reading the New Testament is that our access to the New Testament is through the New Testament. And why that's a problem is that when we hear Pharisee in the church, if you've been around us long enough, what do we hear? Self-righteous, hypocrite, wicked. We, we import all of Jesus' little con, you know, conflicts with, with Pharisees into whatever venue that you know, we're, we're reading, right? We take Matthew's 20, 23s, you know, as Jesus is, uh, you know, well, lambasting the Pharisees, you know, like, you whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, you who clean the outside of the cup but leave the inside unclean. And we take that and we put this into the parable. And when we, leave, and when we read the parable, we say, of course the Pharisee doesn't go home justified. They're the bad guys. They're the ones who killed Jesus. They're the ones who, you know, with, with all their, they're constantly running into conflict with Jesus. But that's not how Jesus' hearers were going to hear the word Pharisee. As Jesus takes the Pharisee and the tax collector, he, he, uses, he uses for the people the, the, what would be the epitome of righteousness and the epitome of scumminess. So when we hear Pharisee, we, we hear it as a negative term. And even if you've been around in Christian circles, you know, you'll have to be like, oh, so-and-so is such a Pharisee. Right? We use it as, as a way to like, insult people. That's not how Jesus' hearers would have heard it. The Pharisee is the one that you wish would coach your son's soccer team. He would be the one that you would be enthralled if he was their, your kid's school teacher. He might be the one who is on your elder board, or maybe even your pastor. He's the one that, you, that young couples would go to when they have marital problems looking for wise biblical counsel. He's the one who would teach the best Sunday schools, would have the most thoughtful lessons. He'd be the one who, who does the stuff better than anyone else does the stuff. And while you're you know, struggling to manage 10 minutes of a quiet time a day, he you know, mentions about his you know, hour-long prayer session, and you're just like, wow, how does this guy do it? He's the one who takes holiness and righteousness and living out the faith as seriously as anybody. And you can see that in the parable, don't you? The Pharisee goes well beyond what the law requires in, in many respects. What does he say? Well, I fast twice a week. What did the law require? Well, the law required you fast once a year on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But he fasts twice a week. Why? Well, to be part of the, the holiness movement to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. He, it says he ties all that he gets. He goes above and beyond what was required. So you're expected to tithe, perhaps, you know, what your own produce. But for many of the Pharisees, they came to the conclusion that, well, you know, okay, I tithe my own stuff, 
But when I go to the market and purchase other stuff, I don't know if that's been tithed. So if I, you know, I go and I buy some wheat, well, I, I'm going to tithe the wheat that I buy as well, just to make sure that nothing that I have goes untithed. He goes above and beyond in order to be concerned about not even his own holiness, but the holiness of the people. And he goes on to say, right, I, I am not an evildoer, or a robber, an adulterer. I've kept myself from this. And there's no reason, there's no reason at all that as we come to this text that we're supposed to assume that he's lying about himself, that he has some sort of delusion about what he has done or what he hasn't done. That all that is to condemn him is here, right in this text. Right here as Jesus unfolds the story. You know, when I was younger, um, when I was youth group age, we would do this thing uh, called evangelism explosion. I don't know if you've ever done it, but you know, it'd be like street witnessing. And then we'd go, you know, go out and go to the street, and it'd go something like this. And I have some reservations about the material, um, but you, so you would approach somebody and be like, hey, listen, you want to take a two-question test to know if you're going to go to heaven? It's like, sure. And then the first question is this. If you were to die tonight, and you're stand, you know, standing before before God, and he says, well, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And invariably, the answer is, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. And that's when you make their whole facade crumble. And you say, well, have you ever stolen? Well, yeah. Have you ever lied? Yeah. You know, Jesus says that if, you, uh, if you've ever lusted, you've committed adultery. Have you ever lusted? Yeah. And then you just say, well, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving adulterer. Is heaven supposed to be filled with lying, thieving adulterers? No. And then you have this opportunity to to give them the gospel, to share the, the mercy of Christ crucified to them. But as we come to the Pharisee, what does he say? I'm not a robber. I'm not an adulterer. I don't do these things. I go above and beyond what the law has required. And yet, we're confronted by Jesus' words that he does not go home right with God. It is the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who goes home justified. And what you're supposed to be hearing, what you're supposed to be wondering, is if that guy doesn't, how can I? If he isn't accepted by God, if the smile of heaven is not upon him, then how do I ever have a chance? What hope could there be for me? And then you may be wondering, well, what was it when he's not doing the bad things and he is doing the good things and he's doing the good things in abundance and excess? What was it, what is it that says that we're... At the end of the day, God does not accept him. Is it because he thanks him that he doesn't do bad things? I thought we should thank God. Why should we not thank God for what he's done for us? Why should we not thank God for the, the ways that I could sin but don't because of his preserving grace and, and pleasure? No, no, it's not that at all. It hinges on this, this moment. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. 
that I'm not like him. I'm not the scumbag. That I am righteous. And we're confronted by our own idea that at the end of the day, whether you've been in the church for a minute or for years, that almost all of us struggle with this idea that that God's smile or frown on me depends on my own ability to, to be righteous and holy before him. And it all comes crashing down. And there's two traps that we might fall into and I'm going to talk about today. The first trap is this. To be aware of. That within the fruit of God's salvation, there lies a seed of apostasy. That as God saves his people, that within that there is a seed that could grow into apostasy. John Wesley, the, the great Methodist minister, I'm a Methodist pastor, and so um, I'm going to talk about John Wesley here and there. Um, you know, he's the, you know, the, uh, a preacher during the Great Awake, Awakening, and you know, during his ministry, he kind of got kicked out of the churches for preaching the gospel, and so he's doing open-air you know, field preaching, and he's preaching not to the, the people who have their act together. He's preaching to the people who, well, are not that great. They're kind of you know, the dregs of society. But they're hearing the gospel, and they're receiving the gospel. And he's putting them into into small groups, and they're being transformed by the gospel. And he notices that within them, well, something's changing. No longer are people who would be giving themselves to alcoholism and bad habits and laziness, no longer are they doing that. No, they're, they're not giving themselves to those things. They're working hard as unto the Lord. And something peculiar is happening. They are reaping the benefits of God's salvation. They're becoming wealthy. But Wesley saw that as a problem too. Because in these things that God is doing in their midst, in this transforming, sanctifying power of God, what's also happening is that their hearts are being drawn to and allured by the deceit and the vanity of wealth. That within the fruit of God's salvation was the seed which would cause them to rather than pursue God more, but to forsake him as their all in all. And so what does he do? Well, he, he recommends that they, well, they have to not only earn all they can and save all they can, but to give all they can to work against the seed that could grow up into apostasy. And in the same way, the work that God is doing in your life in transforming you, you know, you who came in with this great week, who, you know, had these spiritual victories, guess what? In that is a chance, a seed of apostasy that we would begin to not, not well, fall under the mercy of God, but come to God, come before him on our own righteousness. I've had a great week. I've done the stuff. I made it happen. And within there, we can lose the very gospel that saved us. When I was teaching this passage not too long ago, I talked with a man afterwards who, um, he, you know, is a son of the 60s, every bit so. He spent his teenage years, you know, in drugs and sex and alcohol. You know, like that's what his life was. And, 
you know, despite the fact that his parents were, you know, very, very, you know, well-educated people, he kind of, as, well, he was barely scraping by at a, you know, at the local community college. But there, he, he met a woman who, well, turned him on to the gospel. And he, became, he was saved. And he became, and he grew in grace and favor. And he, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, you know, he's, he's a man who's within the church, well-respected, on elder boards, teaching Bible studies, you know, someone that you look, that wherever he goes, he's looked up to. And he remarked to me that, you know, you come in as the tax collector and you wake up one morning and realize that you're a Pharisee. You come in desperate for the mercy of God, but then you, you know, time goes on, you receive the fruit of God's salvation, you become known as being wise and respectable and righteous and holy, and all of a sudden, well, you're not the tax collector anymore, are you? That within the fruit of God's salvation, there often lies this seed of apostasy. And the second trap is this. And it's a unique one to our day and age. It'd be a reverse self-righteousness. Now, as the hearers are listening to Jesus, who, you know, the two men who go up to the temple to pray, who they would want to identify with would be what? The Pharisee. But not us. No, we'd like to identify ourselves with the tax collector, oftentimes. Right? And so rather than praying the, the prayer of the Pharisee, we would pray, well, a different kind of prayer. God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. All judgmental. Spiritually serious, but doesn't really know you. Doesn't get it. You know, there's a certain contingent of people who, you know, the, the, verse, that, the verse of Scripture that they know is, you know, it, it's boiled down to, Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. As if judgment was the one unforgivable sin. But it's not somehow more meritorious to judge the Pharisee for his self-righteousness than for him to judge you for your unrighteousness. Jesus isn't belittling the concern of holiness Jesus isn't belittling the severity of sin. No, 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 no. He, Jesus is lifting up the, how extreme the severity of sin is and saying that this one, despite all his acts of piety, despite all his righteousness, despite all the bad things that he doesn't do and all the good things that he does do, yet still falls short of God's glory. The point of the story is not that sinners need not repent point of the story is that the seemingly righteous must. That those who seem to have their lives together, who seem to be walking faithfully, and yet at the end of the day, the word of God to them is they're not justified before him. They're not. And so we come to the tax collector. And what I would call the troublesome mercy of God. And until you're troubled by God's mercy, you haven't understood this parable. Now, we talk today in today's day and age about something called, 
you know, has been dubbed cancel culture, right? And it's basically like somebody does something bad, whether in the present or somewhere in the past, and as a, we have a righteous indignation to it, and we, well, try to cancel that person. Get them banned from polite society, if you will. And we can deride cancel culture for being overly censorious, and we can easily come up with, you know, certain examples where, like, I can't believe we did that. Like, you know, the, the man who was fired because his wife said something inappropriate on, like, Instagram or something like that. Real story. You're like, really? But at the same time, some people are canceled because of not an overly censorious society, but for the righteous indignation of society. That we will not tolerate such things. Right? Like a month or so ago, you know, there was the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell. And most people I know is like, we want to know who was associated with her. Because that was some pretty bad stuff. We want to know their names. We want to know what they did. And we want them canceled from society. And if we don't want that, well, I think that there might be something wrong with you. Because it was evil. It was as despicable as you can think of. And until we see the tax collector as somebody that gets to deserve to be put in that category, we haven't understood Jesus' words. Far too often as we read of those who are on the outside of society in, in different cultures, we, we look at their, the, the moral qualms that society had with them as, as just being petty. Almost a victim-blaming mentality of a people who did not like tax collectors. But what were they? They were those who sold out their own people in order to make a buck. They were the sheriff of Nottingham, oppressing their own people, lying, cheating, and stealing in order that they could become enriched as they work and empower the government that was oppressing them. Jesus himself says in Matthew 18 that, you know, for those who are unrepentant, you know, in the church, and, you know, the church goes to cause them to repentance, and they deny, he says, well, they should be to you like a tax collector. Jesus himself says that. They shouldn't be accepted in polite society. But yet, as the tax collector comes here, what does he find? He finds mercy. He finds mercy as he calls out to God. And so, all we need to do is perhaps update the language of this a little bit in order to kind of get at what Jesus is talking about here. Imagine for a moment a philanthropist, a seemingly godly philanthropist who started the after-school program for, for children to get them off the street. It's a reading program that help, you know, helps them not only avoid the bad stuff, but also, but also you know, to, to get into a good college and make something of themselves. And he goes into a church alongside a drug dealer who ravaged the community, who got kids and children hooked on drugs, 
And they both walk into the church, and the philanthropist prays, oh God, thank you for all the things that you're doing through me. Thank you for this after-school program that I'm starting. That's, you know, getting kids off the street and making sure that they're safe and building up the community. And thank you that I'm not like this drug dealer who has spent his time, his years, to make, some, to make himself a buck, just destroying families around him, destroying the community. Thank you that I'm not like him. And the drug dealer says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus' words are what? He's the one who goes home right before God. He's the one Not the philanthropist. Not the guy who has it going on. The one who spent this time. And this is when we come to what I would call the troublesome mercy of God. This is the thing that should spark a little bit of outrage in you and say, nope, that's not fair. That's not how it should work. And yes, that's exactly how it works. That those satisfied with their own righteousness receive all that they desire. But those calling out for mercy receive what they ask for. And one of the things I find most intriguing about this parable is that both the Pharisee and the tax collector go home to send down the Temple Mount stairs having no idea about what happened that day in the heavenlies. The Pharisee goes down assured that the smile of heaven is upon him, that God has been pleased with him through and through, that, he, that how he came in thankful and full of his own self-righteousness, that it was enough for God. And the tax collector goes home. He descends those, mountains, you know, those temple mount stairs, Wondering, did God hear my prayer? Is there any chance that the sacrifice for sin that's held on that temple applies to me as well? Is there any chance that God has heard that? That God would deem me worthy to receive the sacrifice for sin there? Beloved, I have good news for you for what they did not know that we do know that right now, sitting next to God the Father Almighty, is the one whom they called the friend of sinners, who by his mercy extends it to people, to the worst of the worst, as we sung earlier, the, the weakest and the vilest and the poor. That Jesus uses the tax collector not to say that this isn't sinful, but to show that what he says at the end, that all who humble themselves... Everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. And that includes you. That you who've come in defeated and broken and heavy-hearted, that you who've come beaten and blustered by sin, that there is a mercy that's found to you. It's, there is a mercy extended to you. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That all who look to the blood of the Lamb can receive his forgiveness. That as the psalmist writes, you know, that he cleanses us from all of our iniquities and heals us of all our diseases. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. That he will not always accuse. That his anger will not last forever. But he extends mercy to those who fear him. Isn't it a good thing that God's not like us? 
Isn't it a good thing that his mercy that defies our sense of what's right and what's just, but it is extended to those of us, those of us who look to the Lamb, those of us who look to Jesus for salvation can receive this mercy extended to us, so great, so pure, so vast, so good. Beloved, this, this morning, as we hear the words of Jesus, don't let this morning end without calling upon his mercy for your life. Whether it's for the first time or the millionth time, find that salvation at the foot of the cross. This time I'd like to invite up the worship team as we close. Kind Father, I ask that by your spirit, even now, that you would draw men and women and children and youth to yourself. That what I can't communicate fully by my own words or eloquence or lack thereof, that you would make real to your people. That those coming in blustered and beaten by sin, that they would find your mercy sweet and delightful. That they would be assured by your spirit that it extends to them, even them, as it has been extended to me, even me. Father, glorify yourself in this people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.